0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brussels Insider podcast, a podcast brought to you by the School of Politics and International Relations here at UCD.
1: A series of short interviews where we speak to people who work directly and indirectly with the EU and try to bring their world closer to you.
0: Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Brussels Insider Podcast. My name is Kevin Heron and I'm joined today by my co-host Avine Burke. Today we are talking to Tom Moylan. Tom works in the office of the Director General for Communication at the European Commission. He is formerly a speechwriter to the Commissioner for Trade and before that he worked as a social media specialist. He also lectures in new media in universities in Brussels. Tom is a fountain of knowledge when it comes to pursuing a career and working in Brussels. We hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to the Brussels Insider, Tom Moylan. We are so, so happy to have you here today. Our first question is, tell us about your background and how you came to work at the European Commission.
2: Thank you, Avine, and thank you all for having me. Um, So I kind of meandered into the Commission backwards. Uh, I studied classics and history at UCD, and during my time there, I took part in a few extracurricular activities like UCD Volunteers Overseas and uh, Suez Educational Development, which took me volunteering overseas. And in that time, I kind of got the inclination to go international, let's say, um, but I had limited experience to do so. Uh, so the first thing I did when I graduated was I went off teaching English as a foreign language. Uh, which was really nice because it was an opportunity to, to l- learn languages, to travel, and also to kind of support myself along along the way um, and learn about the world, learn about myself. Uh, it was a really, really nice experience and pick up a huge number of kind of transferable skills that I would use later, like my ability to present things, my ability to explain things in simple ways. Um, but still, at this point, I did not have uh, uh, so much experience in international organisations themselves. So I went back and I did a master's degree in international relations in DCU. Um, and following that, and a period period of angst written job hunting, uh, I came to get a stash in the EU institutions and that's how I, that's how I ended up getting in.
1: That was very crucial to you getting the stage, like to working in the European commission.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you're applying for a stage, the way the applications work, there's a whole, there's a whole load of kind of phases you have to get through. You have to put in your application first and then you, uh, uh, then you Get into what they call the blue book in the European Commission, where you're kind of put on a short list, and then from there, people select you from the short list. So there's rounds of it, but to get through the first round, like it's it's very systematic because you have to imagine that there's thousands and thousands of people from all over Europe applying for these. So what you end up have, doing is evaluating people along the lines of a a point system and for every language you speak you get points for every year of relevant experience you have you get points for every uh uh, uh for every kind of relevant publication or training session you've done you get points so that's uh what what people in HR told me so uh i fe- I, I so i guess that the fact that i could speak a language the fact that i had a A master's in international relations. The fact that I had done some volunteering, uh, all of these things were counting for me, counting. Even though I had never worked directly in the area that I was getting into, uh, all of these transferable skills and pieces of knowledge were recognized as uh, a good basis to build on, which is what the stage is all about at the end of the day. It's getting people in to give them a bit of experience.
1: That's fascinating. We were actually curious about how they hire within the stage and how they hire within the European Union, and I didn't know about the point system. That's really interesting to know. I
2: don't know if I'll get in trouble for uh, for, <laughs> for lifting the veil, <laughs> but uh, realistically, when you think about it, it's kind of uh, logical, right? It's like, of course, you need a language. Of course, for every year you have experience, uh, uh, you have relevant experience is going to work better. But I find that um, thinking about it that way makes it a bit more manageable. Also allows you to be be a bit more strategic in your approach to getting a stage, because to be completely transparent, I applied five times. Uh, I was rejected every time. But at the end of the day as well, you have to also imagine that it's um, to some extent when you have so many applications. I remember one year they released some stats on it and I think 20,000 people had applied, and of the 20,000, 2,000 were shortlisted, and of the 2,800 got in. At the end of the day, you need to like work on your fundamentals, on those skills, on those individual things that will get you points. You also need to present your application so those things pop, because you ha- you can imagine that you have a ton of people looking at a ton of applications.
1: What was it like working in as a social media specialist or a speech writer? And how would you find your work experience and current experience
2: so it all sounds very neat and tidy uh, when you say, oh, you were a social media guy and then you were, then you became a speechwriter and then you did this. It kind of sounds very linear and like I did something for a while and then I changed and then I moved along and added more skills. But to be honest, there was a lot of kind of weeping and gnashing of teeth and quest- existential questions about whether these things were things I wanted to do for the rest of my life along the way. Um, when I came out to Brussels at first, uh, I wanted to work in development. I had been doing volunteering in university, and be, I wanted to work in development, and I wanted to work in policy. That was the other thing I wanted to do. And I came out, and uh, I was offered a stage in the communication unit of uh, DG DEVCO. It was called DEVCO at the time. It means it's the Directorate General for Development and Cooperation. What it was called at the time. So, working in development, but on communications. Um, And I was like, okay, I'll compromise on the policy part a little bit. And then from there, you know, I came to the end of my stage. I got a a, a short extension. And then I was offered a job, a full time job uh, in social media, in economic and financial affairs. And so then you can see my see me kind of moving away from why I came out here little by little. Uh, but at the end of the day, I needed to kind of support myself and gain a foothold in the world out here. Yeah, it's and and I mean, so I, there were a few kind of compromises. But first of all, I found out I loved communications and that that was really fun. Uh, that And that talking to people, communicating to people, explaining things simply. These are all things that I like to do. And I also found that I was super into economics. I mean, not 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 in like a uh, my colleagues with PhD kind of into economics, but that I I I enjoyed learning about it an awful lot. It was a part of the world that I uh, didn't know a huge amount about beforehand, so that was really interesting. Um, and ultimately, I went through these different kind of jobs and uh, uh, along the way. And I kind of got to the point where I could um each skill began building on itself. For example, when I went and I interviewed to be a speechwriter, I did not necessarily have any experience speechwriting, but what I brought to my interview was I brought a printed out Facebook post I had done, and a printed out Twitter post I had done, and a printed out LinkedIn blog I had written. And I said, hey, look, I wrote these tweets, which means I can write a good soundbite. And I wrote these uh, Facebook posts so I I can show you I can pluck heartstrings. And I wrote these uh, LinkedIn blogs so I can present a logical argument. and." It, I mean, at the time, the person interviewing me was like, that's pretty weird. Uh, you probably won't get hired, but thank you for an interesting interview. And later they came back to me and they said, actually, on reflection, no, no, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a chance. So as you kind of build up credibility and experience in a particular area, you can kind of cash that in. Ultimately, I did actually cash it in and I attempted to do some policy work, and it turns out it didn't suit me very well. And that I after spending all of my all of my time writing snappy lines and like trying to convince people and persuade people of things, it turns out that sitting down and focusing so deeply on on Policy content, or trying to draft it myself, I found and 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 keeping track of all those processes, I found it quite difficult. Still very rewarding, and I still occasionally involve myself in that kind of thing. But it's just I just find it interesting that you just kind of build on each experience and take the things that you like best from them and keep moving along with that. And that uh, that has worked for me so far, I guess.
1: Oh, absolutely. Like you never know where your career is going to take you. Like when you first start out, you are so certain of one thing, but then in 10 years time, you're in a completely different environment, but you're very happy regardless. Yeah,
2: absolutely. No, for sure. And I mean, it's also what's cool is that when you leave something behind, uh, it doesn't mean you leave it behind forever. So I was a teacher for ages and I used those transferable skills to get into kind of policy stuff. And, or into, into international relations, into European affairs, but I actually have kind of come full circle and I started teaching in universities on the side out here again. And I do quite a lot of training courses for my colleagues and it's actually something I really appreciate is that I'm able to teach well <laughs> and, and it's just become another string to the bow. I think one thing that I learned, especially after moving out here and kind of changing direction, changing course a couple of times in my early career, is that um, I used to think about things in very uh, ultimate and defined terms, that if I took a left turn here, I could never take a right turn again in my whole life and that kind of thing. But I, and, and nowadays I realize that all of the nice things that I like doing, now that I've kind of got... Let's say more of a foothold, a more sustainable situation in terms of my working life as well, that I can continue to reach back and do extra little projects on the things that I really love.
0: I wonder, could I could I ask you because in preparing for this this podcast series, because obviously it's aimed at younger people and trying to promote the EU as a potential destination for for a career, but when we reached out to a lot of young people, they kind of expressed. A lack of knowledge and interest with the EU and how it works. And I'm just interested to get your perspective as someone who works in communications, like what kind of role can the the, the DG for communication play, kind of bridging that gap between the EU
2: and the younger people in yeah, the citizens? Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's always going to be a challenge, right? Because to begin with, Communicating about Europe is a huge job. It's like 450 million people in, well, 27 official languages, more cultures, other languages within regions. It's tough to begin with. And then to bring that to young people is another layer on top of that. People only have so much bandwidth uh, you can only care about so many things. And so it's only natural that you're only going to, that you're going to start caring about the things that are immediately in front of you and then work your way out. And to be honest, once you pass, like, your social circle and what's going on with you, and then you get out to your local community and why is there a crack in the road there, and going out to your national level and saying, hey, I don't agree with this or I agree with that, I don't like this politician, I like that one, and then you try and get people to care about this other thing that is notoriously difficult to explain on top of it. because that that's that's kind of uh, uh, one of the challenges is that the e- people often compare the EU to a national government um or try and com- draw comparisons along those lines. But the fact of the matter is that it's something completely different. That's incidentally one of the things I like about it. and one of the things things I find interesting about it is that we're b- building a brand new thing. But how do you how do you connect with young people's lives in that sense? I mean, like I, I don't have all the answers, but I think that there are some kind of decent rules of thumb that you can uh, abide by. Um I'm a big advocate for talking about the values of the EU, what we're kind of st- what we're working towards, what we're standing up for, things like democracy, rule of law, um uh, openness between cultures and and uh, 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 and the benefits that come with that. Um, I'm also a big believer in connecting the EU, with people's day-to-day lives so for young people talking about the opportunities that they are afforded through the whether th- those opportunities are the Erasmus program which is one of the most uh, successful and relevant for people who are who go to university for example or uh freedom of movement if like i i availed of freedom of movement after i finished university i went and i worked in spain i i i i, I didn't have to fill out 10,000 forms to do so. I just bought myself a plane ticket and I landed in and then I went around different schools handing out CVs and I can live and work anywhere. So translating these to practical benefits. Um, But I think one of the the issues as well is that, for example, I myself, the things that I listed there, Erasmus, uh, uh, Freedom of Movement to Work, those things are also quite privileged things to be talking about, right? These Not everybody has those opportunities. Even if they're allowed, they can't avail of that. So you have to find things that speak to people in all sorts of different situations. And I think that's a big challenge, but that's how you're going to ultimately communicate the EU. Uh, on the one hand, showing people the real benefits, and on the other hand, really stepping up the efforts to explain what it is, why we're doing it, how it works.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I like that kind of approach as, as you're focusing on the values as, as opposed to maybe people's perceptions of this big kind of bureaucratic institution over in
2: Brussels. you got to bring it down to the kind of first principles, I suppose. Um, yeah, that's it. And, and don't forget, you think about the big faceless bureaucrats going like over in Brussels, making scary decisions in big, big grey suits. It's me. Uh, <laughs> Like I mean, like with their normal human beings as well, like coming from all over Europe, all getting together, and that's one of the things I like about it as well. is people from all over Europe getting together, seeing how we can make things work, seeing uh, the opportunities that there are in working together and pooling resources and sharing ideas.
0: So gender equality is a big issue at the moment, especially for this commission, which has a thirteen to fourteen commissioner balance. So you could say it's doing pretty good. How does the issue of diversity, be it gender or minority based, how does that fit into the work of communications or how does it affect your thinking?
2: I guess there are two angles that you can think about this from. As a communicator, I can make sure that our communications are inclusive themselves, um, like the content, making sure our images represent real Europeans, what Europeans actually look like, but also in our methods. Um, and recently inside the institutions, there's been a big push for accessibility, for example, uh, whether that's sign language interpretation, taking color blindness into account and in visuals, or making things accessible for people who are hard of hearing. Um, so as a communicator, that's the kind of thing that I think about. But then also thinking about it more broadly. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, um, uh, it's not for me to really have a sermon on this as a white, straight, privileged man, but you don't have to have much special insight to see that there's a bit of a diversity problem in Brussels. Uh, We do quite well in gender awareness in Brussels and in the institutions, but... It's it's there's. I recommend you look up a, a, a campaign. There's like a, a hashtag Brussels so white, which uh, uh, really kind of has been highlighting the issues around this, and I think it's an important issue to address because it makes sense that the people who work in Brussels should represent all of Europe, right? In in race, and economic background, gender, disability, sexuality, whatever it is, um, because it encourages equitable governance, but also because, to be honest, more diverse groups come up with better ideas. Uh, That's just social science. Uh, That all said, I mean, it's not my place to say how we should fix it. I think those people of those backgrounds, uh, of underrepresented backgrounds, are the best people to lead the conversation. Um, But what I can say is that if there's someone listening who is of an underrepresented background, um, please apply, please come like apply for the stage or come out to Brussels. There is a place for you. Uh, the EU institutions would be richer for your contribution. And look, if you're not sure where to start, feel free to get in touch with me directly. And and, and I'm always happy to share views or talk something out.
0: Uh, just before I hand it back to Avin for for the final question, I wonder could I ask you briefly, what advice would you give to students who may be listening, who would like to pursue a career in Europe? And what would you say are the benefits
2: or drawbacks of of that career? So if you're looking to come out here and to start a career, there's a few things you can do to make your life easier. Uh, First of all, I'd say, even though it's a bit scary to focus on the languages, uh, because those are super helpful. And I, I, for example, I learned Spanish, but uh, I came out here and I didn't really have very good French. Um and I've been working on it since and it's I just if I could go back I would have if, if if I could zoom back into like 16-year-old Tom's body and slap him over the head and tell him to pay more attention in French class or to actually go out when he was sent abroad to take advantage of the opportunities. I I think that would be super helpful. So off the bat, I'd say the languages are super help would be would be very helpful. Um, otherwise, I would also say to have a look at the environment going on out here in Brussels because there is so much stuff going on. One of the things that I find amazing about this environment is that um, there is really something for everybody. I mean, there's people working on all sorts of things. I mean, there's like people working on the fisheries around Malta and fighting climate change through particular energy revolution, uh, revolutionary energy tech and pushing all sorts of agendas from gender equality to, I don't know, to to cap reform, to whatever it is. Uh, There's something for everyone. So have a look around and see what interests you. But at the same time. Don't get locked into thinking there's only one job for you. Uh, If there's an area you want to work in, have a look around. Like I was saying earlier, transferable skills. It's where they're at. And in terms of benefits, uh, oh, I mean heaps of benefits it's a nice place to work it's really interesting you get to meet people who are kind of politically engaged or who care deeply about issues all the time from all different parts of the world uh from all sorts of different places who 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 have kind of chosen to be there for all sorts of different reasons uh and have all sorts of life experiences and views on things that it's interesting to learn about. There's also loads of opportunities in different policy areas, in different places to work, different skills to pick up. So these are... Really nice things in terms of drawback. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know uh, the weather. I guess it's 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 Belgium. Uh, I suppose it's not really that much of an issue for Irish people. But um, no. But uh, but honestly, overall, the the main drawback uh, uh, for me is that it's kind of far from home. That is a kind of a call you have to make, and I didn't realize until I guess a bit later. Uh, because I was, when I, especially when I was a bit younger, I was all full of uh, uh, energy and juice for running abroad and going and exploring and stuff. And I and I still am, and I still enjoy it, and I still love it here. But it, it, it kind of, especially as the years have gone on, I've kind of reflected a little bit on um, uh, uh, kind of, you know, separating myself from my life in Ireland, from my family, from my friends. We're still in touch, and I'm fortunate that we're, we live in a digital age where it's much easier to communicate, but that still hurts a little bit. Um, but then, on the flip side, I'm. it's interesting because I'm making my own new home here. Uh, I recently got engaged to a German woman. I'm setting up a life. We're, we're settling in here. Uh, and that in itself is a cool adventure to be on, you know?
1: This is a reoccurring question we like to ask all our guests. What do you think is the EU's biggest challenge in the next decade? And how can we tackle it?
2: yeah um I mean there's all sorts of different challenges I could rattle on about the obvious one being recovering from covid um which there's uh, uh the both the immediate health impact and the 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 economic effects that will come from it we could also talk about things like big the big the big topics like climate change or democratic legitimacy uh, or internationally kind of finding a path between the us and china is always an interesting one this is it i got i i, I think that um one of the things to remember when you're talking about the challenges of the eu Especially when you hear about the EU, you're always hearing about the latest crisis, right? And the latest challenge, the latest thing that will lay the EU down. Uh, I remember I had a, a university professor at one point who, 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 who regularly predicted the collapse of the euro at every given opportunity, but would also kind of reflect that he didn't understand why it hadn't collapsed yet. I think that one of the super important things to remember about the EU is that it, it's a a brand new thing that's born of the will of its members, and it's uh like it it was born of and born in crisis and born in challenges. It it came out of the the seeds of the uh, 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 uh the seeds of it came out of the ashes of World War II. and like the along the road there's been no end of things going wrong and people expecting it moments to be the end of the road, but it's always rattled on in terms of compromises and deals, a bit messy, non-linear. Like anybody's job experience, I was saying earlier, it always seems so smooth when you're looking back on it, but along the way, it's uh, a lot of weeping and gnashing of tears. Um, and I remember hearing, like, I mean, like the, the the epitome of it that I make that always makes me laugh is I remember hearing the story of the Treaty of Rome, which was uh, a, a treaty signed in the fifties, which kind of became the found, which founded the European Communities, and you can kind of trace the the origins of the EU back to it. And uh, I remember reading about how they um they 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 lost the treaty. Uh, when they were on the way to the event to have it signed. And they ended up getting all of the lads and uh, uh, because they were all lads at the time, but they got all of the leaders to sign a big stack of blank documents and then shuffled it away before anyone had a chance to look. I think that concept of kind of rattling along and pushing through is uh, really one that I kind of find both inspiring and endearing. So yeah, that I guess that's my 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 ooey gooey uh, squishy way of saying there's a load of challenges, but also I kind of believe in the capacity of the EU to face them all, and I think that's pretty cool. I, I mean, they always we always seem to find a way, right? So that's nice, and I'm quite glad to be a
0: part of it. Lovely, brilliant. Uh, thank you very much, Tom. I think that's a that's a perfect place to
2: to wrap up for today. Thank you very much. A pleasure. It's been a pleasure.